Welcome to Bit Based. What follows is a little bit different of an episode than we normally do. We started off wanting to do kind of a jokey traditional BitFace list episode and ended up doing an episode about what's going on in the world right now. When I recorded the last BitFace, White Man Can't Jump, we were in a completely different place in this country and on the globe than we are right now. And my two friends that joined me today wanted to talk about that. So this gets really emotional. This episode gets really deep. I want to say, I don't know if we've ever done a bit face like this, but with everything going on in the world, we felt like we needed to kind of address it and address it in a way that's personal to us. I'm joined on this episode by Doug Lund, who you guys know, who's been on a ton of episodes of BitFace, and he also co-hosts with me over on Tap In Geek Out, and my oldest friend, Scott Lewis, who had the idea for the episode, came on and recorded with us. So I hope you guys all are safe. I hope you are spending this quarantine or this lockdown or whatever you want to call it with somebody you love. Reach out on social media. I always say this, and it applies even more now. If anybody needs anything, you guys can always hit me up. I love you all. I hope we all get through this together. But what follows is the Bitpocalypse. holding up scott you travel a lot for work and you're trapped in the house with five kids what's that like <laughs> not only do i travel a lot my client industry is supply chain which is just completely fucked right now um you know i've got clients like uh I, well I, this is a public forum so railroads for example they completely locked down so railroads are a really interesting industry because they move all kinds of different products, things as varied as medical supplies to, you know, food, grain, coal, hobos. ammunition, hobos, yes, vagrants. They're all over the place and they're not allowed to take time off. So it, it's a very interesting dichotomy versus what the rest of the world is facing right now where we're all relatively comfortable at home and you know we can do whatever we want to do more or less um, as long as we keep it safe we keep it inside the house the railroads on the other hand they don't get to take the time off it's like trucking as well they don't get to insulate themselves from the rest of the world by definition there is no tolerance for the flow of things to stop moving and putting it on modified 747s on Amazon simply is not a possibility. It's curious because they're using this as an opportunity not only to test their disaster recovery protocol, but mm. this is what they trained for when they looked at all of their contingency plans. How are we going to handle an interruption in the supply chain? How are we going to modify our business when Dell can't get motherboards from Wuhan, China? I mean, this is a big fucking deal. It's not just toilet paper and you know hand sanitizer. The entire supply chain has been shut down, yet there's no tolerance for that. I mean, the lines at the Heeb, my favorite grocery store, are unbelievable because there are people competing for finite resources. And without the supply chain doing what the supply chain does, there is no supply. And that 
shuts down society at large. So that's a bigger answer than you were looking for, I suspect. But my business is in a really weird state. Another one of my clients is American Airlines. And you talk about industries that are getting hammered. I mean, they're just getting fisted by the you know giant purple fist of fury, but they don't get to take time off. They don't get to send everybody home and say, you know, we're going to hunker down for a couple of months and everything will be fine. They still have to fly the planes because there's nowhere to put them. It's utterly bizarre. So, you know, the conversations I was having with my clients, how are we going to work with our partners and how are the, the supply chains verbs, the different things that happen in the supply chain going to continue unfettered? We're still having those conversations, but we're also talking about things like how are we going to continue to serve our supply chain given that our captive workforce can't come into the office any longer? So it, it's really been fascinating to me, much more interesting than you know my prior gig where I was working with financial services. Financial services, fine, we all go work from home. You know, the NASDAQ's gonna keep flowing, NYSE is still gonna keep flowing, whatever. But supply chains, just much more interesting to me. But you know, all of that said, the nearest office for my company, Axway, is in Phoenix. So I have been remote from the beginning. And realistically, I've been remote for 15 years before that as well. For me, you know, I have my space and I have my doors. I have my two branch managers on their dog beds behind me. And, you know, all is well. The change has been the number of coworkers I have. And, you know, like the Dolly Parton song, working nine to five, it's like working from nine until 9.15. Then I got to go, you know, put out a fire in the kitchen because somebody doesn't know how to do their algebra or, you know, my wife needs some help with science experiments. So it's really curious. Um, you know, I, I'm basically a homebody anyway. You know, I, I don't go out tons and tons, but when I want to go out, I want to go out. However mundane the exercise may be to go to the office depot to get toner or go get crickets for our myriad of animals that subsist on such vermin. You know, all of that kind of stuff is just really fucked up right now because you guys are doing this as well. You walk through the store and there's like this bubble of fear around you, both you know metaphorically and physically. People look at each other differently and it's utterly bizarre. So you know, the respite of leaving home to go do these mundane or exciting activities, whatever they may be, is irritating more than anything. But, you know, having the kids at home, it is a challenge. It's not unprecedented from my perspective, because it's really not that different than, you know, trying to get through the summertime when maybe they have day camp or swim team or whatever. But for the most part, they're here. And, the possibility of interruptions in my work schedule is it's omnipresent. It can happen at any point in time. So, you know, you just roll with it, right? Because there's nothing you can do. It, it is what it is. I'm lucky as shit. My life has not changed besides not being able to see my girlfriend and the bubble too. Cause like I said, sorry to a guy at the grocery store today. And he looked at me like I just raped his fucking mom <laughs> seriously, but I'm still going to be employed. People still need health insurance. So right. I'm really lucky. And I work at home. The rest of my team is now at home, but I've been here for two years. Shit hasn't changed for me. Like, I can't see my friends. And this is how my drinking has been over Zoom or um, Hebe's got me on some fucking app called House Party. Have you guys ever heard of that? <laughs> yeah, my 12-year-old really likes that. Me and Amit were giving him mad shit about that, too, because Amit was like, I don't want to use this app. I want to use the House Party too, the Pajama Jammy Jam app. <laughs> 
but no, it, I mean, it sucks. I can't see my girlfriend. I love going to the movies and, um, and I can't see Jacob. So him and I have been hanging out a lot virtually because I, I mean, he lives around the corner, but can't be brisking him, you know? He's what they would call medically fragile. Is that accurate? Yeah, and so is Carrie. Uh, yeah, I knew Carrie had some kind of uh, immunocompromisation. Yeah, so Carrie and I have decided until this blows over, we're not going to risk it either. Maybe I'm wrong, but we can't look back and say, well, fuck, I wish I would have done that. Yeah, Right, yeah, that's, so. there is no undo for the mistakes that could be made over the you know, coming weeks. And it's terribly unfortunate, but that's the way things are. I mean, you didn't ask for my opinion, but what the hell we're talking. I think that because, you know, you're not one of those essential workers that has to leave house for employment, you know, you're relatively lower on the risk vector scale uh, where she is concerned. But I appreciate and respect the hell out of where you're coming from. Why would you want to take the chance other than to have the company? And because she's crazy about you and you're crazy about her. No, and we did hang out last weekend, but. She and I, I think Monday had a moment of remorse, like, yeah, we probably shouldn't be doing this, you know? And so right. we're going to uh, gonna see where it goes. But, you know, I'm able to at least talk to her on FaceTime and, and play games and shit. But, yeah, no, I'm I'm lucky as fuck. Well, unless like the whole Medicare system collapses, then my life's going to suck. But I think that's exceedingly unlikely. Personally, I think that. If anything, the concept of Medicare is only going to become more critical, regardless of what happens with the elections. I think, you know, the nature of that social safety net, that, you know, the medical safety net remaining intact is going to become even that much more critical as the course of this disease progresses. There's really no alternative. You cannot have people dying in the streets like a Monty Python episode, you know, bring out your dead. It's not going to work. I agree with you. Which is good, obviously. And I'm also glad I'm not in Georgia. Jesus Christ. <laughs> On many levels, yes. Doug, are you? Phil Tessa? What, what has changed in your world? Well, like you guys, I've been set up and prepared to do this for some time. I don't work exclusively at home like you guys do, but a couple days a month. So the transition, uh, which I feel like my business made that call pretty early compared to a, a lot of businesses. Um, Very early. Yeah, right around the end of the first week of March, we decided well, just to mobilize our entire workforce, which wasn't difficult because we're a technology company. And as a managed service provider, the bulk of what we do is done through remote support tools regardless. There is still the occasion where we have to roll someone on site, you know, to, to turn something off and, and turn it back on again, you know, anything that requires kind of physical interaction. But they're just trying to schedule that during times when people aren't there. I'm actually really proud of how we've been able to keep our people productive and, and safe because I think what's terrifying so many people right now with the economy going that the way that it is and, you know, everyone knows someone that's had either their hours reduced or, or they've just lost their job outright is like, how am I going right. to keep putting food on on the table for our families? That first couple of weeks of March, um, working with our customers to get them into the same place, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of phone calls of what is VPN and um, how do I how do I use this? And again, I, I've been really proud about how we've been able to contribute to keeping small pockets of the Colorado 
economy running. And that's what I'm really trying to yeah. focus on right now instead of the existential dread and the gaping hole that this is torn open in, in our psyches of, and, you know, all the worry that comes with it as parents, uh, you can relate. That was the really interesting part, I think, is uh, we just became empty nesters. So it didn't feel like a whole lot had changed right away, but now we're really starting to miss the babies and uh, being able to see them in person. Yeah, I don't know if your Jeez. son told you this, but I bitched him out, Colin, for being at Target looking at action figures. He sent me a Mr. Miyagi figure, and I was like, you can't wax off Corona, you little motherfucker. Like, go home. <laughs> I told him the same thing. I didn't tell that great a joke, but I think he's finally come around. Took him a while. Not uncommon for the younger people, I've noticed, like the invulnerable 20-somethings. You're absolutely right about that, Doug. You know, you look at the initial stages of the crisis, for want of a better word, and it was thought to be this is going to, going to affect, you know, the older population, maybe, you know, neonates, babies and things like that, or people who have immunocompromised systems, the, the weaker immune systems, if you will, and the 20-somethings who are seven feet tall and bulletproof, hey, why not? We're going to go to fucking spring break. Well, I've got a reality check for all those people. You're now the principal accelerant of this crisis. My cousin's kid, she's 24-ish, somewhere in that range, right? Recent graduate from college. She's had a, a real job for a whole year now. She and her fiance decided they were going to go to spring break. It's like, you're not in college anymore. You don't get to do spring break. But anyway, she went from Kansas City to Florida and celebrated spring break and you know took a week off great whatever that's fine go have fun while you're young then she came back and her work told her she cannot come in for two weeks they forced that isolation on her because they could not state that it was a safe workplace for everybody else and i think that, that was a wake-up call that there's a world that exists outside of my you know immediate carnal desires my will to go have fun and, and drink beer or drink whatever and, and, you know, go party on the beach. I get that. We all would love to be in that position right now, but it's not reality. And we have prefrontal cortexes. That too. Yes. <laughs> right. You know, the, the, the ego and the super ego start to balance out the id. You know, I'm kind of ashamed that the first time I heard the Rogan podcast was three weeks ago, right? I had to drive up to Dallas to pick up my kid's hedgehog because she fucking needs a hedgehog now. And <laughs> three hours up, which, three hours Which back, kid has a hedgehog? Abby, uh, number Abby. two. How did I guess? Did she name him Sonic? She named him Linus, but uh, Sonic was definitely on the list. Anyway, I was driving back and, it, you know, there comes a point in time where you need to reach outside of your playlist on these long drives and you need to listen to something that's you know intellectually stimulating i thought well i keep hearing about the rogan podcast what the hell i'll give it a whirl ended up being seven hours in the car i just i listened to joe rogan talking to two of my favorite musicians in, in the entire world they're having a good time they're talking and it was very stream of consciousness but it all comes together in the end and, and there's a, a kind of beauty to that there's a fine line in podcasting and I'm no Joe Rogan between prep and improv. And right. I love it when we prep, but some of the best jokes and shit that I think Doug and I will both agree have ever come on our podcast is shit. We did not write. It just comes out. I will never go back to no prep at all. I mean, today 
having you on here, the three of us can do 45 minutes about anything. But Doug was like, need a topic, man. Not coming on without a topic. And I was like, I get it. I totally fucking get it because that's how Doug operates. You're exactly right. That's something I took from Hardwick, too. Chris Hardwick can make a 45-minute conversation, and he can get the best answers out of the person and the best stories, but it's not like he's sitting there asking them scripted questions. It's hard to do. It is. You know, the phrase paradigm became toxic, but it really is a paradigm shift in, you know, this kind of pseudo-journalism in how we're going to have conversations that you know, end up being consumed by other people. And it, it's utterly fascinating. I was not a big podcast listener until a, a friend of mine from IBM said, you know, go listen to this Dr. Death series. You're going to get hooked on podcasting in general. And uh, he was fucking right. I don't know if you, you're familiar with this story. This Dr. Death guy was a neurosurgeon. And the problem was he wasn't a very good one, but he knew how to manipulate the system so that you know, his, his mistakes and the things that he was doing wrong, which are life changing for his patients were being covered up either institutionally or through the legal system or something like that. But he's a neurosurgeon in Texas, which does not have a very good safety net for reporting medical malfeasance or medical malpractice. And it's like 10 episodes long, something like that. And, you know, I found myself Driving back from Dallas, and I, I stopped at a gas station. I just sat there and I kept listening and listening and listening because it is so consuming to listen to these minuets and listening to these unscripted but real conversations between people about something that happened or observations or what's going on in the world. It, it's just utterly fascinating to me. It's become a genre all unto itself, which is fantastic. You know, your bit faced experiment became something with a lot of people listening to it. And it was like, well, we're going to talk about video games and shit. And it has taken so many twists and turns. And it's absolutely beautiful because no episode is like any other. We're not going to be talking about Call of Duty Zombie X or whatever the fuck it is. No, we definitely won't. (laughs) No, we're not. (laughs) And this is where my ignorance of all things video games comes in because my kids are great at it. And uh, I'm great at making them feel bad about themselves, but I, I don't get into it like I used to. Anyway, um, you look at the the story arc of how these different podcast episodes progress from we have an idea to we're having a conversation. And it's like this life cycle, a microcosmic life cycle about real shit. I mean, things that are going on. And it's fascinating. I think one of my favorites was the year in review you guys did. Oh, shit. It was a couple of years ago. But I was listening to it while I was driving to St. Louis from Kansas City, which is four hours of absolutely fucking nothing, right? <laughs> and I was listening to your podcast and, you know, favorite video games of the year, favorite uh, albums we're looking forward to for the next year. And uh, that's where I was introduced to the Japan droids, which unbelievable. Point being, though, you know, you have this idea, you have a little bit of preparation, but it becomes very organic along the way. And that's fantastic. Well, thank you for saying that, because I think Doug and I would also both agree that we do this because we love it. And a lot of the reward we get out of it has never been monetary, but there has been a shit ton of reward. I was just going to bring it back around to Rogan. And uh, it sounds like you ended up listening to that Osterholm Mm -hmm. episode. That was for a lot of people I know the moment that they changed their mind about how they were going to react to this pandemic. And it went from like, 
not a big deal to guys. I think we might have a problem here. And let, maybe let's just act like we do until we figure it out. Well, you're right. We don't know what's going to happen. We cannot take our personal safety for granted any longer because this might be real. And that has been a, a just a seminal change in the psyche, especially in America. I think in other countries where perhaps there's you know more recent military action or wars or whatever you want to say, they're a little more accustomed to shit not going the way they were expecting. In America, we are so fucking spoiled by this notion that we're always going to be safe. We're always going to be able to get Charmin and we can always go down to the target to get some more of whatever it is that we need. Well, guess what, boys and girls, that's not the case. It is not magic. It is not preordained that you're going to be able to get the products that you want. I hope, I don't know that if, if I think this necessarily, but I hope it's going to be a wake up call for people to appreciate the things that we have as a culture, I realize the broad brush I'm painting with that statement, but the things we have as a culture, we cannot take for granted because it is not a given any longer. If the shit hits the fan, you may not be able to get the things that you want. In our consumer-driven culture, it's just, well, I'll get it off of Amazon. When I fucked up my Linux server, I needed a new part, right? So I go on to Amazon and you know I'm going to order the I.O. card that I needed. And it's like, okay, you can have that by May 29th. And this was last week. Whoa. It, it's like the mail order days where you know you may get it at some point, you may not, right? I hope that that mind shift, that change in perspective is going to be a wake-up call that we cannot take things for granted. We cannot take each other for granted. We cannot take our health and our well-being and our financial security for granted any longer. I was going to buy Carrie a Switch. The cheapest one on Amazon is $650. Right, because you can't get them right now. They're sitting in the factory like, unbuilt. Right, which is going to affect the release of the Xbox and the PS5. Of course it will. One of my major clients is Dell. And Dell's supply chain is a spider web. It's unbelievable, unfathomable to me. But they have tens of thousands of trading partners that participate in different aspects of the construction of these systems that, you know, we're used to swiping a credit card and it'll show up in three days. But the complexity of that system behind the construction of these things that our consumer-driven culture embraces as necessary, the complexity of it is the downfall of it as well. You don't get a car from Ford or Subaru or whatever. You get a constellation of different parts and suppliers and things that are put together by people in a factory. And then it's shipped over this you know, channel or that channel. And it's going to show up in the dealer lot when you're ready for it. The whole system is falling apart right now. And the fragility of it is something that we have to accept and have to understand in order to proceed as a society moving forward. In American history, you know, whether you loved Bill Clinton or not, or loved things about Bill Clinton or not, the signing of NAFTA was way ahead of its time because it was an attempt to keep the supply chain relatively localized to North America. And had the promise of NAFTA continued forward, the manufacturing base may not have been in South Korea, may not have been in Wuhan, China, which didn't even exist 30 years ago. It would have been in Monterey, Mexico, or it would have been in Mexico City with parts you know, provided through Ottawa, Canada or something like that, right? 
much smaller, much less complex than it has become. I think this is going to be a wake-up call that going with the lowest bidder for manufacturing different things, whatever it is, whether it's you know IT support or manufacturing application code or building stereo components, or I'm dating myself by saying the word stereo, but you know what I mean, audio components, it is all going to have to change moving forward because there is a wide acknowledgement, a broad acknowledgement that it is too fragile to continue in the way it exists today. Bringing it back around, I, I'm hopeful that there is going to be a silver lining here beyond the costs that we're going to bear as a society, both emotional and material. My hope is that it's going to be a learning experience moving forward. I really hope you're right, but I see how people learn through the miracle of social media and they don't learn shit. And they can yeah. have something told to them right in front of their face from Fox News, and it's still fake. And because it doesn't fit into their box of how they think things in the world should work, they refuse to accept it. Our hometown, Scott, we'll just call it that of Augusta, Georgia, had a full <laughs> Applebee's last Saturday. That's all I have to say. And really, that's all you need to say, <laughs> because that is going to be a microcosm of genetic realignment, in my opinion. <laughs> well put. I'm trying to be as delicate as I possibly can, because this is going to be a mixed audience, right? But without that awareness that our actions have consequences, and sometimes those consequences don't have an undo button, you're right. We are not going to learn. And you're probably also right that there are populations that will refuse to accept it and refuse to accept the inevitability of change moving forward. You know, Tom Brokaw with his greatest generation stuff, right? Say what you will, they fucked up the economy and all that. But after World War II, there was a nearly universal idea that we need to do things differently. Yes, it created the baby boom and all of that, but it also created affordable housing. It created vibrant downtown lifestyles where you know people could have a house and live in Detroit and go have a decent union-protected job at Ford and still put their kids through college. That all happened because of this giant fucking wake-up call where we lost millions of people in World War II. And everything that went into that, uh, you know, the realignment of industry, the realignment of finance, the realignment of individual responsibility. So I don't know. I, I mean, maybe it has to get really, really bad where people are losing people that they love in order for them to realize that business as usual is not going to be acceptable moving on. And at the time of this recording, when you look around at just the statistics at where the U.S. is relative to the rest of the world, over a quarter of the confirmed cases here in the US, which means if you do the math towards the unconfirmed cases, right, it's maybe an order of, of magnitude. We're already past the point where there's still time enough to do something to keep this containment to where we're still in the six figures of deaths, right? Mm -hmm. We're past that point. So it's going to touch everyone. The question is, is like, is it going to be enough of a sock in the mouth to really change things? Or are we going to reel for a little bit and then try and get back to the way that things were before, even knowing that they were broken and, and that we're now primed to suffer the, the same consequences again, 
with the next pandemic, which they're looking at these things now at, at like a what, eight to 12 year cadence. It's an interesting point that you bring up. And, and I would tend to agree that the severity of the wound is going to determine how much we learn from it. Personally, I was not terribly scared until I went to the grocery store the other day. And I was walking through the grocery store and people had masks on and, you know, I had my little uh, Clorox wipe. I cleaned off the card. I figured, you know, that's probably good enough, right? There's people that would see you in the aisle and then they would go take another route in the store in order to pick up their jujubes or whatever the fuck it was they were trying to buy. They would see you as a threat to their personal safety. And you're like, I'm a relatively nice guy. I'm kind of an asshole sometimes, but I'm a relatively nice guy. I don't think I have symptoms. I'm certainly not running a fever or anything. But, you know, without that lesson having staying power, it's not going to get a lot better. We're going to continue to think that we are inviolable, that we can vote for whoever we want, and it's not going to have consequences. We can boil down the federal government and get rid of a bunch of people and let Jared, whatever his name is, be in charge of everything. And it'll all work out in the end. I genuinely hope that that is not our future, that we don't learn and wake up that we can have a better America or a better world. I mean, take America out of the mix for a moment and a better world for our children or our friends' children or whomever it is that we care about, you know, who are going to continue to occupy this rock when we're long gone. I don't know where you guys were on September 11th. I remember exactly where I was. I woke up in the middle of the floor because I had gotten hammered the night before. I was single. I had no major responsibilities. And I turned on the TV and I saw the second plane run into the towers, right? And I thought, holy shit, this is not real. This can't be real. Flash forward 20 years, and this is almost a, a generational reinterpretation of what we all went through when we were coming of age, you know, relatively speaking. And everything that changed overnight. But, you know, for a couple of months, maybe even a couple of years, it was a better place to live. Yes, we, we all lived under the specter of this, you know, nebulous threat that the terrorists were going to come for us. And we had to take our shoes off to get on an airplane and, and, you know, no more drinking water bottles. We had something that we were all unified against. And, whether you go to church or synagogue or temple or whatever or not, they were all full. I will not say for a moment that that wasn't out of a sense of fear, but something good, some kind of a silver lining was precipitating out of that storm cloud that was over us, that we could all care about each other. And maybe we could put a flag up, even if we didn't like the guy or the gal that was in office. And you know, maybe we could become more involved in civic affairs and actually give a shit who the mayor is or the governor is and, and you know things like that. And we lost sight of that. But maybe, just maybe, this is going to be enough of a wake-up call that for at least a couple of years, we can all be on the same team again. It doesn't have to be us versus them. And if you're not with us, you're against us. But you know, maybe we can all be concerned about the people that live around us. We have a Facebook group in, in our neighborhood here. And Every single day, somebody is on there saying, hey, I've got to go to CVS or I've got to go to the Heave. I've got to go to Target to get whatever it is I need to get. Does anybody need anything? Or, you know, reaching out to the older people who live in our neighborhood. Do you need me to pick up your scripts for you at the CVS? And that isn't something that would have been 
even remotely possible before all of this. But maybe that concern for people around us and that de-abstraction of the body count and the deaths around us so that we you know, remember that these are real people with real families and people who were loved, not just the weakest among us, but, you know, the marathon runner guy that, you know, lives downtown and, you know, he got it and nobody knows where he got it from, but it, it didn't have a happy ending. And that was a real person, not just a checkmark on the screen or on the Chiron at the bottom of CNN.com where, you know, body count is now this. These are real people that we should be concerned with, which kind of brings up one of the things I wanted to talk about today, you know, going back to this notion of being prepared, right? Top three regrets, right? If the FEMA trucks are outside, if the virus is coming straight for us, if it's, you know, space invaders and we're getting bombed from orbit, whatever it is, what are the things left undone that I wish were done? And how can I learn from that list of regrets so that they aren't regrets if this doesn't have a happy ending for all of us? Game, shall we? Wow. I brought like top three end of the world songs. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Oh, top three regrets in my life? If regrets is too harsh or uh, too uncomfortable, things left undone, things that you wish you could complete. So that, you know, when you are on your deathbed, when the respirator is plugged in and somebody's saying, should I unplug it or not? Things that you would like to cross off your list. Not regrets, then. Things that I wish I would have done. Like, regrets is an episode I don't know if I want to do with anybody, guys. (laughs) Okay. Top three things. Right off the top of my head, there's only one state in America I haven't been to, and that's Alaska. I'd like to cross that off my list. Okay. There's one for me. I've never been to Alaska. That would be the 50th state. That's kind of an accomplishment that I'd be happy about. Yep. So it was oh, a big then, deal when your parents crossed all the states off the list. I remember that. Right. So I kind of well, want to do it. Ironically, too. was also Alaska. I guess it's right. not ironic because it's in the middle of fucking nowhere and uh, very few reasons to go there unless you're an outdoors person. But you were never stationed there, I assume, right? No. And then I guess on the same line, I really want to go to Japan. I really want to go to the arcade district in Japan and drink beer and just be there among all the flashing lights and the craziness. I feel like that that's like going to video game heaven. And I've never been so, you know, for the audience that may not know you personally, video games are not a hobby for you. It's beyond that. I mean, how would you describe it? It's a hobby, but it's also something that's really shaped me. I'll say that video games are the best therapy in the world. It's always been a place that I could go escape. And then it became more of something I wanted to be the person that knew everything about it. So I tried to earn the video game historian title, even though I don't think I have yet. But I love gaming. Yeah, I guess it is beyond a hobby for me. I technically retired last year from achievement hunting. I decided I didn't care about my gamer score anymore. And that's been so rewarding because now I don't care. I don't really compete anymore because when I do, it's against Jacob and he just mops the fucking floor with me. (laughs) He beat me at Trivial Pursuit last night. Now, granted, I was nine beers in, but Jacob beat me at Trivial Pursuit. If there's a time for me to leave the planet, Scott, come on. (laughs) I've been telling people I'm ready to go. Assuming that I can prevent myself from infecting someone else, I wouldn't mind getting the virus because then it puts 
my worry level down here quickly, if I come through it, I'm immune for at least this cycle, right? Which they're projecting as uh, somewhere between 24 and 36 months of immunity. And if I don't, well, I don't have to worry about it anymore. So I think it's not going to be an issue of if we're going to get it, but an issue of when. And if you need advanced care to you know come through it with a happy ending, can you get that advanced care? Or yep. are they gonna what was the old uh, trope death panels? Are you gonna end up you know in front of a death panel? Well, you know, he was kind of a dick, but he's still relatively young and maybe we'll put him on the vent and we'll take grandma off instead. Obviously, that isn't a scenario that anybody wants to explore. But I hear what you're saying. There is definitely a part of me that wants to rip the Band-Aid off and just get it fucking over with. But then I look out, very physically look out my door here, and I look at my kids and it's like, it's not that simple. It's bigger than me. You may be an empty nester, but that doesn't mean you're on your own. Obviously, you've got Nikki at home. You've got the kids that are still relatively in town. And that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be people who are impacted by your diagnosis should it come to pass. I hear what you're saying. I think my goal personally is if I'm going to get it, to get it towards the end of the cycle when we're really smart about how to deal with it. Anyway, so we were talking about top three things left undone. I got one out of the way. Yeah. Doug, give me one things left undone in your life. The Great American Beer Fest episodes from last year. That has to make the last right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm just going to end this meeting now. See you, guys. <laughs> you know, I said kids. that out of love, Doug. So nothing but love. No, it's funny because I have a list for like top three hobbies I should take up during the lockdown and podcasting is on that list. <laughs> All right. Check. But this has been a time for a lot of reflection. Being a pudgy guy who also has a long history of smoking, if I did catch this virus, it's probably going to hit me pretty hard. And I'm not looking forward to that. So to your point, I hope it does come at the point that we have the resources to deal with my fat ass. But that has all got me to thinking about, you know, you look backward and what have I done with my life and what might I have done differently? And uh, there's this whole universe out there where I'm happy in some capacity in a kitchen cooking somewhere i got into it because well frankly because i'm fucking lazy and you can be really good in this industry with about um 20 of the effort that it takes to to do to be really good at another job you know like an actual like skilled trade or a doctor or a teacher those kinds of things you don't think yeah. that, that people in a different trade would say the same about their own journey into that form of work we have a bunch of law enforcement officers in our neighborhood here, right? Could they have done something more? Should they have done something more? Is there a reason to have done something more to create, you know, a lasting legacy behind them where, you know, profession is concerned? You know, Eric, I mean, your dad is a lifelong learner, but he has never been satisfied that he knew enough. So even when you apply 100% of yourself and you go get, you know, a PhD in nuclear psychology or whatever the fuck it is, when you get there, it's like, well, what do I do now? Was that enough? I would say, Doug, personally, I mean, you're in a business right now that is vital to the sustainability of our culture because 
you're helping businesses of all shapes and sizes continue to do what they do. And I mean, the derivative impacts of that are enormous, whether it's keeping people employed, providing some kind of service. I mean, whether you see that it is a vital industry or not, the reality suggests something very different. And if you don't think that you're applying 100% of yourself to get there, I, okay, you know, I, I respect that. But <laughs> I, I would also say that there's 98% of the population out there that couldn't do what you and I do. They don't know Yum Install from Yum Industries. And I mean, these are very specialized skills that we have honed over a lot of years. And I mean, you could say it's easy now, but you know, it's not easy for everybody. That's true. There's like an intent versus effect argument that I could probably make, but it doesn't matter. If I want to boil it down is that I sometimes I feel like I ended up doing what I'm doing because I didn't take control of my life and my destiny when I was at an age to really determine the trajectory. And I ended up where I am by default. I do think I'm good at what I do, but I don't know that if I had had more initiative when I was younger that I would have ended up in the same industry. Well, that is a convenient segue because that deals with two of the things that are on my list. Number one, to this day, and I'm old as fuck right now, and I will continue to be old as fuck, but one of the very few regrets in my life is leaving school when I left school. And I left school because I had an opportunity to get employed that has since created the arc of my career. You know, I had this idea, this this dream, this notion that I could be the next Stephen Hawking, I could be the next Brian Greene, and you know, really delve into what is the nature of the universe. And I was studying physics, and I had this idea that I mean, nothing else held my interest for long enough, but the absolute pursuit of pure truth about what is the nature of the universe, where are we going, and where did we come from is what I wanted to do. But I ran out of money. And, you know, I was working in a computer lab at the time at uh, my school, Georgia Tech. And it was like, well, okay, this is obviously in demand. I'm going to go make some more money. Then I'll come back and, you know, finish my degree. And then, you know, maybe I'll cross that finish line as it was defined then. But something weird happened. It became clear to me that as much as I didn't want to become an IT professional, it's what was needed. And it was what I was organically good at. And I count my blessings that lesson was driven home because I'm not sure I would have figured it out on my own. I, I really did not want to do computers for the rest of my life. But to do computers, air quotes, is so many different things. And a lot of what I do is how can we ensure that we don't have to fire people in three months or six months? But you know, I still can't say that coming down to number two on my list, did I make a difference? Can I die happy? Because I knew I did the best job I could. I used whatever gifts from whatever universal concept gave me these gifts. Did I use those for the betterment of humankind, for my family, for my kids, to the fullest capacity that I could have? You know where I'm coming from? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know exactly where you're coming from. So we'll do my number two then. Okay. To your exact point. God, I should have really tried stand-up comedy. I've gone up on stage. I've told fucking jokes. I've done it. And being a host is kind of a seg to that. I'm a pretty decent host, too. At least I think so. 
but I really wish I would have put in the work. And I'm not saying I would have been the next Greg Giraldo or my hero, George Carlin, but I think I could have been okay. And I still like telling jokes. It's still my favorite thing, I think, in the entire world to do. We're going to talk about my major regret in life is being lazy, is not trying hard enough. Doing the bare minimum to make sure that I have a roof over my head and I can go do whatever I want. But instead of maybe playing video games at night, maybe I should have been writing fucking jokes. It's an interesting perspective. I would counter, though, look at some of the unbelievable people you've had the opportunity to work with because you turned your interest in comedy into this new forum, this you know podcasting genre. What doors and avenues has that created for you as a human being and doesn't make you happy as a direct result? Very happy. Doesn't everybody want to be funny? If you can't be good looking and strong, you don't want to be funny, Doug? I do. I'm just not. And I know people that clearly have no interest in being funny. <laughs> okay, that's fair. I think you're funny, Doug. You make me laugh regularly. Thank you. Whatever. I'll take the compliments where I can get them. If I were as smart as your dad and as well-versed as your dad, I might be better able to comment on it. But there's a personality archetype that is able to embrace extroversion when it is right, even though you're not necessarily extroverted. You know, you look at the great comics of our lives. Robin Williams, for example, that man was a gift from the universe, in my opinion. You know, he was able to enrich so many lives because he was able to use his gifts. But at the end of his days, it wasn't enough. Making everybody in the world laugh. I, I mean, almost universally, does anybody not like Robin Williams? I would challenge that there were people who were not enriched by Robin Williams if they had ever encountered him, even at the most mundane, watching Mork and Mindy or some of the movies that he created or the personalities he created or the lives he enriched when it was doing, uh, what was the Billy Crystal, Whoopi Goldberg, Robin Williams thing? Comic Relief. Comic Relief. Yeah. You look at all of the lives that that guy touched and he got this diagnosis and it was a terrible diagnosis that our good friend, Mr. Box, has also had some experience with with his dad. An unforgiving disease, but rather than let it ride its course out in his life, he thought, you know, I, I'm just not happy enough to continue forward and I'm going to end it all. I mean, I can't even fathom the emotional complexity of what he was going through at the end when he made that decision to take his own life. My point in going down this very heavy road is being comedic in nature, being funny is important and you can enrich a lot of lives by doing that. But, you know, are you enriching your own in the process? I'd say so. Comedy, though, comes from pain. When yeah. I am at my darkest is when I write the best shit. And it sucks. Because life tells you to be happy, be in a happy state, be in a happy mindset, be positive. Don't we always hear that? If you think positive, good things will happen. No. When I think positive, I write shitty jokes. When I have had a bad day and people have crapped all over me and someone says something bad to me on the internet, that's where comedy comes from. And I think universally, people that are funny are depressed as fuck. I don't think that you can say that that's a coincidence. 
everything you've said has been correct, Scott. You're really making me do some fucking reflection here, though, you asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I am sorry. Bill Murray, take another example. Somebody who's still with us, right? Funniest motherfucker ever, right? His ability to ad lib and make people smile, make people happy. But I would bet dollars to donuts, as they say, that if you sat down and had a drink with him, it would not be the experience you wanted because it isn't the personality that is projected when you're on stage or on screen or, you know, whatever, right? I don't believe that for a second that the funny people that we see on stage are the funny people that we, we would want to hang around with. So I would argue that to be a comedian or to be a funny person is not to enrich people you don't know. It's to enrich the people you do know. And I would state categorically that you do that. Every time you're on Facebook, every time you you guys are on BitFaced or just corresponding with your nephew, that love that you're projecting to these people is where comedy can make a material difference in how you feel about yourself. Comedy is very similar to video games for me, too, that it's the only way that I can deal with life. If I can't laugh about shit, then what's the point, right? But I'm going right. to get out of my shame hole here. Doug, I think you're up with your, your number two. <laughs> with my number two? Didn't you say you wanted to be a chef? Wasn't that your number one? And you are a very good cook. You know, what's funny is that I never actually said chef, but well, we've had this conversation. I think you know me well enough. I am feeling compelled to try and steer this back in a less depressing uh, direction. Yeah, I was going to try and avoid that word because it's not depressing. I mean, it's just being real. And I think this will resonate with someone who listens to this. But we may need one bit face like this a year. And especially <laughs> in light of recent circumstances, I wouldn't feel good if we didn't talk about it at least kind of seriously this week. I mean, we can't be like, hey, you know, let's talk about Police Academy 6. <laughs> and just pretend this isn't going on. We definitely have to get to the top three people you want to hang out with in the afterlife after we get through maybe oh, this one. I didn't write that list, but I'll work on that. That was your idea, wasn't it? And it's a brilliant idea. We'll get there. Don't let him get off the hook. Number two, Things Left Undone by Doug Lund. You know, when you get a family, you put your head down for... 20, sometimes 30 years, and you do whatever is possible to make their lives better. And, and really their lives for a long time become your life. And God, it goes by so quickly. And as the primary breadwinner during the younger years, when admittedly, they didn't hold a lot of my interest. And then as they got older, it's like, oh, they're people now. And, you know, they can yeah. think. And that's when they started getting interesting. That's when I was spending probably the most time in my career, the long hours of, you know, laying the foundation of what was to come and missing so much of what they did. So, you know, the things left undone was really being able to strike that really effective work-life balance to where I got to participate in that. And it's gone now. That's history. You know, you and I, despite being very similar in age, are at very different life stages. I have five kids. My oldest is 14. She'll be 15 very soon. And your youngest is now out of the house, which is an interesting difference between our two views on life in general. But to me, what you just described isn't any different than what you would hear from any father who gives a shit, right? It's like, did I make a difference in my own life? Well, you know, the same question approached from the perspective of any father 
should be, and I would argue usually is, have I done enough to help my kids become successful, relevant people in the world? And the fact that you got them out of the house, none of them are in jail, none of them are dead, that's pretty fucking impressive right now. And you've never met Colin either. <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> I think Eric's saying it is actually uh, impressive. There's a story that a lot of men tell themselves, I think, that the way that they show their love for their family is by providing. And I think that story becomes less true and should become less true in a lot of cases. And I'm not saying that it has to be one or the other. I just I know that I could have done a better job drawing some good boundaries between the time that I was investing in my career development and uh, the time I was investing in my family. I respect that that's your opinion. I'm going to argue encounter that nice loft that's behind you is directly attributable to the work that you put in, which put a roof over your head, over Nikki's head, over the head of the children that you had and the children that came to become yours through unusual circumstances. And it all matters. Is it enough? It's never enough, dude. It, it, it's never going to be enough for you to say, I did everything that I could do. Because in order to do that, you have to sacrifice yourself in the process. And that creates a whole other set of regrets while you're doing it. God damn it, Scotty Cosby. Lewis, you are not going to make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, I've never met your kids, but I know you're doing a great job. And I know that where you are today is a series of a trillion different hinges all pivoting that you know led you down this path to become who you are today and who they are today. It all fucking matters. But I share the potential for regret with you. Have I done enough? Am I still doing enough? And, and I don't think that anybody who has anybody else in their life that isn't completely self-absorbed is ever going to be able to, to say, I feel good about what I did. It was enough. I'm, I'm done. I can check out now. I just, I don't believe that. So a little less serious. The third thing that I would put on my list of things that I have not finished that is really just about me is finishing a full distance Ironman. So this is 140.6 miles of bullshit, right? You swim 2.4 miles, you bike 106 miles, something like that. And then you go run a marathon. And people train for this for a year. I was supposed to do a half Ironman. It was going to be my third one actually tomorrow. And the call was made, which was the right call. We're going to cancel it. We're going to move it out till November. It's absolutely devastating because you put so much of yourself into that training process that not succeeding leaves you with this hollowness inside. And, you know, for me is doing a third half Ironman going to be as rewarding as the first half Ironman? Absolutely not. The second one wasn't as rewarding. So it's this continual improvement, the cycle of needing to do better and one up what I was before that, you know, drives you to be better. So to me, the next thing, if the bombs were falling tonight, the next thing on my list of things left undone that I would really regret was not going the distance, so to speak. That's my number three. I think a lot of professional athletes are in that same boat right now, and I don't know that people, myself included, initially had a lot of appreciation for that. It's like, oh, dude, you make a shit ton of fucking money to play a game for a year. But you take a step back and it's like they've literally devoted 
years to keeping their bodies in the condition that is necessary to excel as a professional athlete, that mentality that you described of all of this work that I've done has been for nothing. There are going to be no finished seasons. There, there aren't going to be any championships. They canceled the whole goddamn March Madness tournament. And if I want to point to one thing where I knew we were in fucking trouble, that was it. There's a part of me that just really now appreciates that. God, these poor athletes, they're in the same boat as so many other people who have been performing at a high level of something and are just not able to do it anymore. It's very similar to the Facebook posts where you see entire orchestras coming together through Zoom and compromising the security stack of their laptop, but whatever. They come together on Zoom and you know they continue to perform because that's what they need to do to feel like they've accomplished something as a person. They have to perform. It's not appreciably different than what Eric was saying, where comedy is concerned. You know, you have that need, that drive for self-affirmation that is underneath everything. I'll throw my last one then real quick. Number three, especially since I'm old as fuck, but I got out last Friday and rode my skateboard down to Cottonwood Creek Park. I should have skated more because now if I get hurt, I can't be seen in a hospital, (laughs) but (laughs) In my 20s, I could have had a lot of trips with my health insurance to the hospital. I should have been on my skateboard more. I love watching football, but you turn on some dude shredding a park for 60 minutes, and I will watch that all day. I could never do an Ironman like you, Scott, but I wish I would have spent more time with the wheels underneath my feet. And I don't think it's too late. You know, yeah, the the risk is different now because we are old as fuck, but it's not too late. Even Tony Hawk is still out there on his board. And yeah, I mean, he's a icon of the industry and all of that, but he can still Arguably the, the best skateboarder ever that lived. Right, of course. Oh, he's fucking shredding. I don't know if you saw his, and I'll throw this out there to the audience too, Battle Commander for the Barracks. It's where a skater shows up and does all their best shit on the course. And it's unbelievable. Doug, I know you've seen it. And he talks about it in the video, but he says, look, I can tell that I'm not going to be able to do this. It's going to stop in the next couple of years is what he alludes to. He's 51 now, but that he's going to continue to do it until the day he has to stop. And then he will move into some other incarnation that still leverages his gifts, whether it's teaching or judging or whatever it is. But yeah, I mean, that will be a part of him that he at some point has to leave behind. He's developing a fairly prolific career in social media for people who tell him like, hey, dude, you look like Tony Hawk. (laughs) (laughs) When he gave the lady his ID and he's like, oh, Tony Hawk, like the skateboarder. And he's like, yeah. And she's like, I wonder what he's doing now. And he's like this. (laughs) (laughs) And he's got dozens of these posts. They're great. He's aged really well, too. He doesn't look 51. I don't think he's still got the Tony Hawk hair and he still looks cool, I think. I guess I don't know what 51 is supposed to look like, but it seems like it's a goal line that keeps moving. (laughs) Which is a good thing. Yeah, it's sure. I mean, I I don't look at myself in the mirror and think, oh, you know, that looks like a a 44, almost 45 year old guy. It looks like me, maybe, you know, a little less hair, some wrinkles here and there, a little fatter, whatever it is. But yeah, I mean, to be regarded as a certain age is, it's really a curious phenomenon because it, it, it always seems like it's moving further and further out. Eric, I remember when you and I were in early high school and we were celebrating our parents' 40th birthday. I, I have the pictures and it doesn't seem like it was that long ago. 
but it also doesn't seem like my mom is now 30 years older than, you know, we were at that point in time or whatever it is. I, I'm not going to do the math and embarrass her, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely weird to think that he's in his, your mom 15- still looks the same to me when I, I saw her two Christmases ago and your parents still look like the same parents that you had in Augusta. I know that they're older, but right. they, like your mom has not changed one bit for me. She still gives me mad shit. She still asks me when I'm going to get married. Like the conversation has not changed <laughs> in 20 years. It was like the text message I sent you around Christmas. Who's the girl in the picture? Oh, that's my girlfriend, Carrie. Oh, I wonder if they're going to get married. No, I, I, actually it was Thanksgiving. That's when it was. And I was like, I don't know. You know, let's just hope that they're happy right now. And whatever comes, comes. Let that be our aspiration for everybody. Doug, number three. God, how do I bring this back around? You know, maybe something that's left undone is something that is uh, a work in progress. Uh, Maybe I'll try and spin it like that. I'm really looking forward to becoming an obnoxious old fuck. I talk about it a lot. (laughs) It drives Nikki up the wall because she can see what's coming. There's an age when I get just to be even more obnoxious than I am right now. I have no problem speaking my mind. You guys know that about me, but... The old man pass lets you get away with so much shit. I mean, there are so many times that we know these old people in our life. You look around and they're like, they're doing these things. God, my parents, some of the things that are coming out of their mouths right now on social media in particular, like really just make oh, me question I, I have genetics. no idea what you mean. Um, yeah, my dad doesn't <laughs> do that at all. And neither does Dr. Hollis. But they're not held to that same level of accountability that uh, like people our age are, right? I think they are. They just don't care. <laughs> they get a pass on a lot of that stuff. It's like, they're old. That's what they're going to do. Maybe instead of going down the path of the dark side and becoming even more obnoxious, maybe I try and correct course while there's still time and actually become a decent human being in my golden years. I'm not going to put you on the couch for that. I I respect (laughs) that you think that you could have done more. That's fine. But I I think you're a good person. Fundamentally, I I wouldn't be here if I didn't think that. I think that about both of you guys. I don't want to hang out with fucking Henry Fonda at the old folks home, Doug. So continue to be an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe Walter Matthau. There you go. Is that a better joke? All right. Next topic. Top three people that you're looking forward to hanging out with in the afterlife, however you define the afterlife. And I assume everyone's up for game because everyone's dead, correct? Or these have to be people that are dead right now. Let's go with the predeceased. Okay, so number one, I mentioned him earlier. I would love to drink some beers and talk shit with Greg Giraldo. Would love that. Carlin is the obvious choice. I don't know if Carlin would want to hang out with me. He seemed pretty curmudgeonly, and I think that was a lot of his charm. But I think Greg Giraldo would love to sit down and maybe roll one up with me, drink a couple beers. I just love to pick his brain about jokes, about life, about what he went through. So Giraldo, number one for me. Okay. Doug, you're up. Well, I'm going to stay heavy here for a little bit. The week after next is the 15th anniversary of my sister's death, which is insane when I say that out loud, because it just doesn't seem like it's been that long. And Carrie and I have a lot of catching up to do. And I imagine that she's probably got some opinions on (laughs) a lot of shit that's happened in the last 15 years. And she was, if anything else, she was always 
endlessly entertaining and I miss the shit out of her. And that would be the first conversation I would have. All right. That's a good one. So it's going to go with Robin Williams. But like I said earlier, the person on stage is rarely the person at the other end of the table. So I'll draw some inspiration from you, Doug. And the person I would really like to hang around with is my Uncle George. So my Uncle George is my dad's youngest brother. And he died in, uh, call it 97 or so. He was 44 years old, give or take, something like that. Wow, Way our age. Down. I mean, our, our age, yes. Which is, you know, one of the reasons why Andy's uh, health issues were so hard hitting to me. It was like, well, that happens to old people. It's like, oh, wait, we are those old people now. Um, so George worked at a uh, power plant. He was an electrical engineer, but he was endlessly entertaining. He was the guy who was playing with the little kids when we would get together as the family Lewis, but he was also the guy that held everybody together as the family Lewis. And it has never been the same since he died more than 20 years ago. You know, my dad has a, a good relationship with his brothers and sister, but we don't get together unless it's for somebody else's funeral or maybe a wedding, but probably just a funeral. And even then it's going to be optional. And that to me is an opportunity that has been wasted because you know, you don't get these moments back. You don't get to be involved in people's lives and, you know, their successes and their failures, the things that make them happy and the things that make them sad after the fact. You have to be there when it happens. So, you know, when the next aunt or uncle gets cancer or heart disease or whatever it is, there's no time to get all of that back, all of those cycles that are lost back. And George was always that bridge that held us all together. He was the guy who would say, you know, come visit us in bumfuck Missouri, which is literally where he lived. And, you know, we're all going to get together. We're going to go swimming, go, you know, tubing, whatever it is, go fishing. The people would get together and it was always around George. And, you know, since we lost him, I feel like there's a lot lost in the process. He would be number one on my list. I think you're up, E. Yeah, and you guys are going to make me feel bad if I pick two famous people, aren't you? <laughs> no. No, not at all. Obvious choice for me, somebody real, is Jesus Christ, I'd love to have a beer with Fordham. Ian died when we were 21. And I wouldn't say that him and I were the closest at the time when it happened, but he was the first friend I made when I moved to Augusta. Mm-hmm. And I still think about that he's gone. And you know what? I'll put Ian and my friend Graham Coot. I'd like to talk to Graham, man, because him and I kind of grew apart after college and he went through a bunch of shit and we had just reconnected on social media when he killed himself. So I'd like to find out what the hell's going on because he's been a driving force in my life to not let the depression take over for you. I'm going to do a jokey one next. This is the most serious bit face that's ever existed. <laughs> Rest in peace, Graham. Dude, you were a cool... Well, Scott, you knew him. He was a cool motherfucker. And you knew Ian. Yeah, when Graham died, uh, you know, I wrestled a lot with, should I have done something? And the reality is, there's nothing I could have done because we didn't have that relationship at the end. I think it's inevitable that people who lose other people in circumstances like that, whether it's by accident or suicide, wish that we could have done something more. Maybe it's guilt. Maybe it's something else. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist, but we wish that we could have said, 
I did everything I could to help you. And, you know, we're not in that position. So inevitably, there's going to be a lot of regret. When we were kicking around this idea yesterday, it occurred to me that in the afterlife that there may be just as, as many like limiting controls for us being able to access these people that we look up to, like celebrities in particular. Very difficult to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them on this mortal plane. There's no reason to think that it's going to be easier once we get into the afterlife. But maybe that's what the afterlife is, is, you know, all things become easy. All things that you want are immediately accessible. One can hope, right, if that is a thing, that it's not more of the, the same bullshit and tedium. But the second person on my list is Brittany Murphy, actually. And uh, I think it was in 2019 was the 10-year anniversary of her passing. Uh, she was born around the same time we were and died you know when she was still in her early 30s and left what was hopefully her best work ahead of her because she certainly didn't accomplish it in the time that she was alive i think that's what i would want to talk with Brittany about is the fact that i'm glad she's dead and that no one misses her we were in right field and you <sighs> came straight out of left with that one <laughs> Fuck. that's the one that i was looking most forward to talking about <laughs> And my wife is downstairs, I promise you right now, her eyes are rolling out of her head. <laughs> she heard your Brittany Murphy diatribe before? Every year. December, I think, is the anniversary. God, I'm still glad Brittany Murphy is dead. <laughs> Dude, you know what yeah. you were signing up for. He just looks appalled right now. <laughs> I'm just waiting for the nasty gram from Ashton Kutcher. Uh, <laughs> he's really going to take that very personally. All right. So we went with a famous person, Stephen Hawking, on my list. I wish that I could have spoken with him. And, and however limited his ability to communicate was, I wish I could have met him and spoken with him and learned as much as I possibly could from him about the nature of existence, where the universe came from, where the universe is going, just all of that really heavy stuff because it was such a fundamental part of my development as a person. I read A Brief History of Time as soon as it came out. This was 1990, give or take, and I was 15 years old. And I have since read it probably 15 times and all of his other books. And I have followed as much of his stuff as I possibly could and interpreted it through whatever limited lens I can provide. But I feel like he knew what was really going on and could share that. That's probably Pollyanna-ish because I think if he would have known, he would have published. But man, I really wish I could have met him. All right, Hollis, number three. You know what? If the afterlife is a giant party, like I hope it is, I'd like to party with Keith Moon, drummer from The Who. Go hard, right? Yeah, right. That's all I have to say about that. I, I could probably do a couple more serious ones, but yeah. Bob Marley would be another fun one to hang out with, right? I think so, because, I mean, he was as much a philosopher as he was a musician and, you know, gifted entertainer. And I, I think that there's a lot that we could learn from people like that who had the ability to communicate a deeper means of thinking through music or comedy or art or whatever it may be. But I respect that. I think that's a great choice. All right, Doug. In that same vein, my number three is Kurt Cobain. 
for all those same reasons, all the ones I probably don't even have to describe to you. I guess my only hope would be is that I'm not old enough now that we couldn't have a conversation that where we had some common ground, because thinking back to the fact that he was 27 when he killed himself is um, I mean, that makes him a, a kid to us. Yeah, that is, if you'll excuse the expression, mind blowing, because I, I, I remember thinking I remember where I was when I heard I was in my dorm room, field dormitory, Georgia Tech, spring of 94. I remember hearing it and I remember thinking, oh, my God, what went wrong? The man was a rock god. He was such a gifted musician and had such a wonderful way of bringing things into the psyche through his gift. And if it could happen to him, who else could it happen to? And, and there was just this, this wake up call that, holy shit. Somebody I really looked up to had fallen so hard and, you know, had gone through so much pain that there was no choice in his mind but to take his own life. The celebrity suicides I can think of, yet Kurt Cobain and shit, he would be the top one. Uh, Robin Williams. Yeah, Robin Williams would have to be. River Phoenix, not really suicide. Heath Ledger also, I guess, suicide. I don't know that it was ever... Conclusive. You don't think either one of them wanted to die? Oh, see, wanting to die and actually taking the actions necessary to kill oneself are, are two different things. And and I'm not saying that's, that's true. not true about Kurt, but I promise you, my first question would be, dude, did you do it or did Courtney have you fucking whacked? Um, that's a along very the same good line, question. It, it is a very good question. Chris Cornell, another one of those guys from that same genre. It took longer to catch up with him, but I think that this un resolved pain that drives their creativity it burns you out i mean it's like a a fire a fire can be slow burning or it can be fast burning but if it's going to be fast burning it's going to be hot and when it goes it's it's just over with you look at some of these incredibly gifted artists be it comedy or drama um in, in the case of heath ledger or oh who was the who was the heavy set guy died from a heroin overdose Brilliant actor. Farley? Um, no, no, a dramatic said, actor. <laughs> oh, shit. I, oh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. I think that there's a certain level of disposability of personal psychic health that gets dispensed when so much is asked of you, when you're helping other people feel better or helping them enjoy times because you're making music or enjoying movies or whatever. It really highlights fragility of the human condition when you give that much of yourself there's nothing left and there's no purpose left and you turn to these things whether it's drugs or the barrel of a shotgun or whatever or both and you're gone just like that how many famous musicians died at the age of 27 hendrix joplin morrison Cobain, yeah jim, jim morrison. morrison there's more there's there's like 20, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's the, a lot the of curse. people on that list. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Point being, though, there, there's just so much that we expect and ask of these people who are very influential artists, not just artists for the sake of being an artist, like your Brittany Murphy analogy, you know, somebody who can get on screen and look pretty, but somebody who actually creates something lasting and beautiful and magnificent. Miles Davis and, and these fires that just burn out so quickly it's a great tragedy 
you know, I wish I understood more about psychology other than my lay interpretation, but there does seem to be something to the competing needs of being a healthy human being and being a human being who inspires other people. There's not a lot of middle ground where you're able to do both effectively and sustainably. So number three on my list, former governor of the state of Texas, Ann Richards. Oh, okay. That's an interesting pick. At a left field. Ann Richards was a Democratic governor in a deeply red state. She is proof that you don't have to be black or white, that you can be gray. You can be in the middle and be successful. Until she got torpedoed by, you know, the machine of both sides, frankly, she was in a lot of ways a lot like Abraham Lincoln, that you could have scruples about caring for one another without saying capitalism is necessarily bad, that you could be against school shootings and still be pro-Second Amendment, that you could love your neighbor but still be grateful for the fence that's between the two of you. She was, I'd like to say ahead of her times, but I fear that that's not the case. I feel like she is a relic of a forgotten time. That, you know, there's room for compromise and that 85% of people who should be capable of meeting in the middle and appreciating the things that we have in common instead of the very rare things that separate us. She was proof that you could give a shit about both the budget and the people. So, Ann Richards, number three. That's a great pick and one I, I never would have thought of, but in retrospect... What we know of her now and the conversations that people have volunteered that they had with her for her to accomplish the things that she did. It really was remarkable. That's a great pick. I love it. Pulled that one out of my ass. But uh, yeah, I definitely would like to hang out with Ann Richards. I also think she could probably drink all of us under the table, which would be endlessly entertaining. But that's probably why she made so much sense. All right. One parting phrase. As the bombs are falling, as the virus is circulating, as the FEMA trucks are pulling up, one parting phrase to leave to the world. It's not how far you go, it's how go you far. Excellent choice. Mr. Law School. Yes, I'm aware. (laughs) Be excellent to each other. That's a little more mindful than I was planning, but that's a good one. I was going to go with, I drink what? in the spirit of Socrates or Socrates, <laughs> as someone's head likes to say, but I'm going to leave this one out there. Pluto is a planet. Bite me, you long necked bitch. Strange times, bro. <laughs> yeah. Okay. One album. I'll go first. End Whoa. Times by the Eels. It is the most apocalyptic, depressing album that confronts our moral condition that exists, in my opinion. End Times by the Eels. Mark Thomas Everett. So I have to pick an album. I prepared songs, so you have to let me think about this. All right, Doug. The Downward Spiral by Nine Inch Nails is my apocalyptic soundtrack. Very, very nice. As much as I love End Times, the album, and its horrifying beauty, there's probably a couple of more that are more 
fundamentally relevant to me, like the eponymous album from Violent Femmes, first thing they did. Oh yeah. That has been the soundtrack to adulthood. I mean, I, I remember picking that up in high school and it wasn't really that old at that point, which is really frightening, but that is probably one album that I could play start to finish at any stage of my life and get something from it. So am I going for like, if I could only have one album or the best album to listen to at the end of the world? When the end of the world comes next week, what would you like to have playing? Favorite would be Murmur by R.E.M. But if you want a soundtrack for the apocalypse, we're going to go with Power Slave by Iron Maiden so that I could listen to two minutes to midnight right before we kick it. Wow. Oh, wow. Pivotal life experience. I was going to go with the birth of a child or getting a job in April of 99. Those are obviously very important stages in life. But I remember a moment of delirious happiness. And it was at the World Series Parade for the Royals in 2015. Downtown Kansas City. The population of downtown Kansas City, to contextualize things, was it's about 800,000 people, give or take. Okay. The population during that parade was two and a half million. Everybody, black, white, brown, yellow, red, does not matter, came out because something we had been hoping was going to happen for eons had finally happened. And the team that we all loved had achieved something that would not be done again and probably in our lifetimes, I would guess. I remember watching the Royals games with Hollis in the 80s and thinking, man, it's going to be so great when they win the World Series. And that was like, what, 85? 85, George Brett. Yeah. yeah. It took 30 goddamn years to get there again. But the arc of that season, it was a mediocre start, unbelievable performance, much like the Chiefs, really. Unbelievable performance in the postseason, followed by an absolutely nail-biting performance in the World Series. All of the schools were canceled for the day. They were like, go to the parade. We know you want to be there anyway. It is not even going to be an absence. Schools canceled. The entire extended metropolitan area shut down and converged on downtown fucking Kansas City for this parade. Like I said, it's a moment of delirious happiness. That is something that I would like to be thinking about when it comes. I'll seg right into the Chiefs, man. Doug's seen the video. I'll send it to you, Scott, because I trust you. But I watched the video of when the Chiefs win the Super Bowl this year, and it's the fucking happiest I've ever been in my life. And there's not video 20 minutes before that where I'm just standing up yelling at the TV like, finally, this fucking team that I followed since my Tiger Cub trip when I lived in Kansas City (laughs) that I followed every year and rooted for. And I know they've won a Super Bowl, but it happened in 1969 and I wasn't alive. And then like the Kansas City Royals season, Mahomes gets injured. Oh, no. What are the Chiefs going to do? And they put on, I will argue, the most amazing postseason performance in the history of NFL football. That game against the Texans was the first football game that Carrie and I ever watched together. And she got to see all of Eric that day. She got to see pissed off sad Eric. And then she got to see me throwing cans at the fucking screen because I was just so hardcore. It's stupid. I have no stake in the team. I don't play fucking football. I am a fan of them because of where I happen to live in my military family as a child. Even dad says, I can't believe out of all the things you took from where we lived, like you took that football team and you have never 
wavered from that. Fuck no, I didn't. And you know why? Because of what happened this year. And Patrick Mahomes, arguably the best player I've ever seen play football. It seems silly in this time of plague to talk about the miracle that was that season. But yeah, for people who give a shit, it was miraculous. And I would say that Chiefs fans have honestly been humble. Now, I have not been humble around my Broncos friends at all. I hope not. Good. Hope not. <laughs> not one fucking bit. But Doug, besides when Nikki called me out, I think I've been pretty humble. Of course, I'm going to talk shit about my team. You know why? They're the best team in fucking football right now. And I'm not going to get to say that once the season, if it starts, once the season starts. I don't get to say that anymore. But until September, I do. My team oh. is the best team in football. No, dude, you get to say it until at least next February, maybe December, January, if they're not in the playoffs. Until someone dethrones them, they're the fucking reigning champs. Enjoy it as long as you can, because as you know, better than any fan base, it can be fleeting. Guys, I've really got to pee. I'm going to step away, and then I think we should find a way to wrap. I think you're right. I agree. So, we've gone all over the map here. This is what happens, man. This is podcasting. It's, this, it's two, this two hours and 33 minutes is going to get cut down to, fuck, I'd say an hour 20. And that's fine. I'm just glad to have somebody else to talk to. <laughs> that is the one thing that is so bizarre about this circumstance that we all find ourselves in is how isolating it can be, even when there are people around us, because we can't go do whatever it is we want to do. We can't go to Applebee's in Augusta, or at least we're not supposed to. We can't go to the grocery store without steering clear of people. And I think no matter how introverted you are, I think at some point, not having that social interaction weighs on you. And it weighs on you in a big way. It sucks, period. But it is a moment or a circumstance that does provide the opportunity for reflection and introspection about this disease that doesn't seem to discriminate from the healthy and the sick or the old and the young. This thing that can get any of us at any point in time should provide us with an opportunity to say, am I happy with how things have gone? And if I survive all this, which the vast majority of people will, if I survive all this, what should I be doing differently so that I can live with myself? That's a good way to put it. Fuck. Normally, I'd be looking forward to playing my brand new Ghostbusters board game with Carrie tonight, and I can't. And I'm going to have a great night tonight. I'm going to drink some more beer. I'm going to play some video games. I'll probably chat with some more people like you. But I can't see my fucking girlfriend. I never thought I would live in a world where I would have to tell you that. Not only would you guys never believe I had a girlfriend, but the fact that I can't see her. <laughs> the Ghostbusters board game that Amazon dropped off here looks amazing. The Stay Puft Marshmallow Man is that big. It's a $90 game on sale for Amazon for $30, probably because the world's falling apart. But anyway, I jumped on that shit <laughs> like, like I did the stock market two weeks ago. And it looks great. And you can play by yourself. There's rules for solo play. And I was like, I'm not going to sit at my dining room table and roll dice by myself and drink. And is that more or less miserable than playing video games by yourself? I'd say way more. Is it? Uh, Have you guys ever played a board game solo? No. Yeah, that's what I thought. Doug, maybe? I mean, I read through the whole box of the Trivial Pursuit cards from the original edition. Does that count? 
that is pathetic, but uh, <laughs> no. That is really pathetic, and I'm never playing you in Genus Edition ever. <laughs> no, you do not want any of this. This has been a great pleasure for me. Beyond the current bizarreness and nuttiness that we're all dealing with, I've wanted to do this for a long time, so I'm grateful for the opportunity. I miss you guys a lot. I was really looking forward to August or September, something like that, to not getting sick for that. But yeah. Yeah, no uh, shit, man. You missed the best mustache you've ever seen in your life. In your life. I can only imagine. Literally, I can only imagine because I can't grow facial hair. Anyway, I appreciate you letting me and ramble on and on about my uh, lay interpretations on philosophy and psychology and all the other stuff. It was great having you here. In fact, it was great. Even if this wasn't a podcast, it was really good to hang out with you guys this afternoon because this is how we're going to have to be hanging out in the immediate future. I hope you guys are doing okay out there. We've been connecting really well on social media. We're going to have to continue to do that. If anyone's in a bad place, needs help, just wants to talk, you guys can always hit me up. Today's episode, a little bit more serious than we normally do, but I was very happy to have two of my lifelong friends, Doug Lund, you guys know, I've recorded with him a lot, and my oldest friend, Scott Lewis. I'll end by saying this. Team by team, reporters baffled, trumped, tethered, cropped. It's the end of the world as we know it, and we'll feel fine.